welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, this is one of the last in our year-long series about the skills of historical thinking, and today our focus is on one of the simplest, but also perhaps one of the most contentious, at least in the last 20 years or so. It is change and causality. Defined as a question in the rabbinical way that we like to roll, it's asking what has changed and why. Among other things, it's the skill that allows us to recognize and sometimes even explain notable change over time. It's attentive to multiple causations, and it thereby thereby avoids simplistic monocausal explanations. Therefore, change on causality is that historical thinking skill that is useful in many, many places other than in history class. With me to discuss change on causality are Pamela Crossley, the Collis Professor of History at Dartmouth College, a specialist in modern China, last heard on this podcast in episode 185, describing what the Central Asians did for us and Suzanne L. Marchand, Void Professor of History at Louisiana State, who joined us in episode 190 to explain the importance of porcelain in European history. Pamela Crossley and Suzanne Marchand, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thanks. Thank you, Al. Very nice to be back. So uh, why did I ask you two to do this, other than the fact I like talking to both of you and thought that talking to two of you at once would be even better? One is... uh, Pamela uh, had been called upon to offer comments once on causation for an eight, was it American Historical Review uh, sort of symposium. Yeah. And Suzanne, uh, before she started looking at porcelain in museums or even simultaneously, knows a lot about German historiography. And if it's not German historiography, is it really historiography? People, <laughs> this is this is questioned. But right, right now you're working on, on Herodotus in German, or the, the the reception of Herodotus, is that right, Suzanne? Yes, although ju- not just in Germany, but generally in, Germany. in Europe since 1700. Right. So th- these are, as as my people would say, these are um, historiography pezzo novante. So I want to start out with uh, Pamela first. Um, how would you define historical change to a classroom of undergraduates? Uh Define it. Okay, this is very difficult. Let's let's think of uh, l- let's think of you know the beginning of a course where the, the students come in right and they do want to know about causes. They really think that's what it's all about, and they want to know the causes of things like war. Uh, they want to know the causes of the collapse of empires and things like this. And uh, you you try to explain to them that. Uh, explanations do tend to follow along these lines of contingent or deterministic, and that as we go through the problems in the course, we will kind of note which of these explanatory modes we are in and so on. And uh, the thing about change over time is that you first have to talk about an event, right? So I think even just being able to construct the criteria of an event and how you would get from one event to the other. Um, it's not something that happens in the first uh, day of class for me or even the first week. It's, it's, it's sort of, these are advanced subjects um, after we've talked about 
the real thing that historians do, which is what Suzanne is actually looking into, which is to inquire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Suzanne, how would you de- describe, first of all, would you uh, put um, change over time later? Do you even discuss it with, under, with uh, would you do you even discuss it with undergraduates? Do you discuss causality with undergraduates? Um, and how would you define change over time? Well, that's a lovely question. I'm really very much with Pamela. I don't discuss change ipso facto. I don't think with early on students, I think they get that. In fact, more often than not, I'm discussing continuity or similarity, trying to make them feel like people in the past weren't that different than you in many respects. And days were indeed 24 hours long then. And (laughs) so one year and another year are a long time apart. That kind of thing I do. And then I do discuss contingency because I think that's really important in survey courses in particular to understand the pivot on which um, things turn and how quick, quickly things can turn around or how a few factors can um, fall into place and then something big, an event like a war. And Pamela's absolutely right that, that students uh, are very interested in causes of wars or collapse or um, those sorts of big picture political issues. So sometimes you also have to sort of pull them away from that into a more, let's say, a null school uh, discussion about how every everyday life transpired and the ways in which there were long-term continuities as well as those sort of sudden changes. Mm-hmm. I, I was, was wondering, is it difficult to exp- – is it uh, – more difficult to explain gradual change. I mean, we the, what you're describing is, I think anyone who's who's taught history knows that. Heck, I, if I have a podcast about the fall of the Roman Empire, there's going to be a lot more downloads. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, of course, there's something vivid. There's something br- mm-hmm. brittle. There's something you know. There's it's Huns on horseback riding through the uh, the capital up the Capitoline Hill, um, or something like that. It's the barbarians coming across the wall. Um, whichever wall it happens to be. But on the other hand, it's very interesting to think about, I think it's very hard to get across ideas sometimes of long-term change about things that people take for granted. Um, I'm thinking of like Richard Godbeer's book uh, on 18th century American male friendship, um, where he was describing an emotional world, um, which, as he said, is is... Uh, he resisted saying that it was necessarily homosexual um, or on the, he just was, this is, he was trying to describe clinically what was going on in 18th century male friendship. And it was of course so different from the way men in the 20th or 21st century are friends. Um, My students, I think that was one moment when I would describe, I was describing that just in passing and I think every man in the room sat up straight and was really intrigued. And I think at that moment they had an idea of grad, somehow they're getting an idea of change over time. Do you know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of something that's a little bit more less dramatic, but in some ways is harder to comprehend. Certainly I find that it's very hard to, to get students head around that the, um, you know, I encounter this, for example, when I teach a course on the history of the city in Europe since 1500. And 
Um, many of the processes that go on are long term. You know, it takes a long time for the roads to get paved. It takes a long time for some people to get sewage hooked up. It takes a long time for the walls to collapse and fall down. And they want something that they can pinpoint and just say um, before it was this way and afterwards everything totally changed. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's human nature. Maybe we want something, you know, very concrete to hang on to as an explanation. Mm -hmm. But it does strike me that it's, it's very hard to, uh, to get that nuance in or to, to describe, you know, how we evolve from one mentality to another, for Mm -hmm. example, that's uh, as you were describing about friendship. Yeah. Pamela, go ahead. Um, Yeah, I think sometimes you can, um, again, I'm thinking of teaching, right? Since almost everything we're talking about is heuristic in some way. Mm -hmm. You can kind of um, collapse these together in uh, trying to get the students to think about what does it mean modernity? Now, historians, professional historians, we don't really even think about that. But I think it means something to the students when you try to tell them this, this literally means people who live the way that we live, right? They live in our mode. And so the point at which you perceive some kind of a disjuncture in which uh, people before that point are living differently from the way that you live now, you are defining a kind of modernity. And you have to explain to them, you know, modern has happened over and over, right? It happened It happened after the fall of the Roman Empire and the, the sort of widespread uh, Christianity. People thought they were modern, right, in the fifth century because people before them had lived differently. And so- Isidore of Seville refers to in the fifth century fourth or sixth century, this modern yeah. age. Yeah. That's that's right, and and it, it you know it happens again in the European Renaissance, and it happens again in the nineteenth century, and so that um, this perception of this is continuity and change that, that that there there's a point at which we started living the way we live. This is all arbitrary, but this is another thing you're trying to get the students to understand. But so just this idea that, yeah, there's a lateral connection we have with people who are living the way we we live. And then, you know, we've got this other kind of, uh, you know, deflected connection with people who we think, we think, lived very differently. So I think for students, if you start to sort of work it that way. Um, because again, wanting to know causes of wars, falls of empires, they also come in wanting to know when when does the modern world begin? And mm. they really think that, you know, you're going to tell them these things. Yeah. Suzanne, do you have anything to add to that? Um, no, I mean, I teach intellectual history often. And um, I would say, you know, there, the, the question of... Um, how things come about, how ideas come about, um, is a is one that's very delicately um, uh, treated or has to be in order not to also suggest that people uh, are just geniuses working all by themselves with no one else around them, uh, and one day you know an idea falls on their head. Um, so that's another circumstance in which I have to do a fair amount of song and dance about how things um, change, what context, what context adds or subtracts or how people um, do arrive at at new ideas that may not be so new, in fact, um, but have um, have new impacts. Anyway, 
that that part of history also is a very complicated one to discuss um, the question of change and and causes in and uh, perhaps more so today than than it used to be um, after the Foucaultian um, <laughs> divide. Then we, um, you know, one of the things about Foucault, I, I don't mean to take a, a big detour, but uh, it's relevant, I think. W- one thing that, that almost every historian hated about um, Foucaultian thinking was the idea of epistemological breaks, mm. because actually none of us believe that there's such a thing as that, um, that very, very sharp kind of change in either language or ideas when we get down to the nitty gritty in the past. See, so I there's was, a, I was so, I was so smitten with that. I must've believed that for at least a year. <laughs> I mean, with, gotta, you, with all my heart, <laughs> but yes, I mean, after a while I realized that if I, I really believed that it was going to be really hard to be a historian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It may work for philosophers, but, um, it doesn't work for historians. Yeah, and I didn't want to be a philosopher. Um, so we um, two words were mentioned. Um, uh, one was contingent, and one was deterministic. Um, I I think I'm guilty of often using contingent or contingency on the podcast without explaining it. Um, could uh, Pamela? Could you uh, have a stab at defining it your way? Um. Yeah. Okay. Although I think Sue's probably got something more interesting to I say think about. I'm it. only doing it because it, you said the words. So I. Oh, I okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I get you. She'll, uh, she'll handle determinism. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well, I, I mean, I don't see, think you can define one of them without the other. You just define okay. them in contrast in contrast to each other, right? So that you just tell the students, look, there's there are some very well established sort of deterministic structures and. Uh, you know, it, it looks as if there are some kind of uh, rooted forces that are actually controlling the way things are going. But in fact, when we look at the events, we see that small things can have large consequences. And so this, this determined quality, right, to mm-hmm. the development of things uh, may simply not be there. Um, so that that's it. Well, I think more or less. I think it's it's a false dichotomy. We all know that. But this is just back to this heuristic thing. I mean, everything we do is heuristic, and this makes it hard to get the students to understand the difference between what it means to be in a teaching mode and what it would mean to be in a writing mode, let's say. What do you mean that's a false dichotomy? Because now you've just defined it. Now people immediately are freaked out because you're saying <laughs> it's a false dichotomy. Um well, I mean, I, I, neither one of them it can really be true, right? We we know that they they actually work together, and that things that look small and haphazard and contingent, um, you know, just one damn thing after another, may actually be uh, determined in some way that is an obvious beginning. And on the other hand, uh, you know, what appears to be deterministic patterns may really just be something like projection of the future onto the, I mean, of the present onto the past and that the, the people are constructing these things. So either way, I mean, the whole question is heuristic and people use heuristic devices to respond to these um, heuristic questions. Okay. Sue? Well, um, German history is full of um, debates about 
uh, origins of things. And the two poles, particularly with respect to the origins of the Nazi period and the Holocaust, are somewhat differently constructed as structuralist uh, or intentionalist Mm. um, or long or short term causes, uh, which may end up being deterministic on the one hand or uh, contingent on the other. Those, you know, those categories can kind of be uh, be applied. And I would say that at the moment, we seem to be at a a point at which um, contingent um, issues are more likely to be stressed than deep determinism. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure why that's the case, but it certainly seems to me to be a prevailing um, view that that those determinist uh, arguments, as Pamela described them, or structuralist um, uh, principles, as I suggested, uh, are not nearly as convincing to us as they used to be. Perhaps we used to have, um, you know, an, a worldview more structured by Marxist principles, or perhaps we used to simply just think in terms of the um, the grander, larger uh, causes that would be necessary for a big event to happen. Um, but it seems to me that today, um, very rarely do we really actually even offer the possibility that deterministic um, uh, causes are are even uh, really viable um, as explanations. That just seems to me to be sort of out of fashion. So I don't know what you think about that, Pamela, but it seems to me that in my field, that's just really not uh, not very well received any longer. Yep, I just totally agree with that. And I, I kind of remember the moment, right, where the, it suddenly determinism was over and uh, everything was contingent and you had to say contingent in one way and yeah, you had you to did. say determined in another uh, way. Otherwise you got and beat like, up after seminar by the other yeah, graduates. Yeah, you know, you would just, yeah, you would be one of the kind of, yeah. you know, country, country bumpkins. At the, but I, I can tell you about something that I used to show students, uh, maybe about this false dichotomy thing. This mm-hmm. is not, these are not students in the first year class. These be more sort of advanced students where we, we might talk about questions that are really more like philosophy of history than they are history. And so, um, well, I have a deck of cards and there's a certain kind of card trick uh, that I'm very fond of where uh, you, you, uh, you're trying to convince somebody that you've, you've mentally got on their wavelength by turning over the cards in a deck, um, and telling them that they should arbitrarily start whatever point they want, any card, don't tell me, some card. And then every, uh, five cards, don't tell me what they are, but every fifth card just sort of make a mark and go on to the next card that is the fifth card. And then there will be a last card in the sequence. And, I will tell you what that last card in the sequence was. Um, and they, you know, cause I, cause I'm, you know, I'm getting on your, your wavelength there as a, yeah. okay. So actually, no, it's a, it's a logarithm, right? And so for 52 cards, um, there's, there's going to be a certain probability that no matter where you start, that in a sequence of, you know, every fifth card, the four out of five times, the last card will be the same. So I explained to them, okay, so the cards themselves, there isn't any card that, that's got any causative power. They're all the same. All that matters is the position they are in in relation to one another. 
And the other thing that matters is no matter where we start, the chances are four out of five, we're going to end up the same place. So <laughs> every, you know, every card is contingent, right? But the logarithm itself is actually deterministic. And so uh, this is where I'm trying to explain to them that, that there's, there's no, you know, there's nothing charismatic about any of these cards. They aren't, they, they, are, they aren't doing anything. But if you were to scale that up to the universe, which is impossible to do, but um, let's just say uh, somehow or other, it, the ratios all remain the same. And suppose you thought about history as the chances are four out of five that everything that happened was going to happen, no matter what the little things are that happened before. So that's what, that's what I just try to do to show them what part of what this causation problem is about. I knew that's so, that's so great. I knew you were a cool professor. I wish I, 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 I never, I wish I had thought of that. Uh, so I, I want to pursue a little bit more of the details. Fortunately, uh, Sue, you brought up actual historical debates. So maybe we should actually approach that. And I want to come back to, to Pamela and ask her about some historical debates within her own field uh, in which I know she is a, a participant um, I, I won't say combatant, but, uh, but, uh, Sue, the, the, the Nazi question and the, the Holocaust, um, could you give us an example of a more deterministic argument from back when, and then a more of, uh, the more acceptable contingent argument from more of the here and now? Uh, okay. Well, um, of course, there was an argument, uh, deep, old argument about the continuities in German anti-Semitism mm -hmm. that went back to Luther. But more, um, more recently and perhaps more powerful was an argument about the failure of the development of the German middle classes in the 19th century, mm -hmm. which meant that liberalism was un, um, uh uh, undeveloped compared to Britain and France, for example, or perhaps Belgium or the Netherlands. Um, and because the middle classes were too weak and liberalism uh, was too frail, there was a, an authoritarian streak that was already manifesting itself at the time of Bismarck that led us to the First World War. And the First World War, um, of course, uh, made um, more radicalism possible, but was not necessarily the turning point in a direction that German history was almost bound to go anyway. So the Weimar Republic was destined to fail and it would fail catastrophically in a, an authoritarian anti-Semitic direction, which then led you directly to the Second World War and the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So the the causes were rooted deeply in the 19th century, and the logic was one of comparison, particularly to the trajectory of Britain. Um, quite a few years ago now, 1980, Jeff Ely and David Blackburn showed in a book called The Peculiarities of German History that this comparison left out a million things, um, including the many, many trajectories to modernity that were not British um, and some of the ways in which the Germans looked more like the British than they looked like uh, other failed states, for example. Um, and since then, there's been tremendous amount of work on um, 
what the German middle classes and what German liberalism really was and about the origins of the First World War. Um, and particularly, I think um, that's where real changes happened in um, beginning to divorce the origins of the First World War and the origins of the Second World War, such that now a great number of German historians will put the causes for the fall of the Weimar Republic in the 1920s um, rather than in the 19th century. So we've shortened the chronology um, considerably and emphasized many more contingencies than used to be the case. And uh, you can see this, for example, in Helmut Smith's um, most recent um, wonderful book called Germany, A Nation in Its Time, uh, which gives um, uh, a different set of, of chronologies than you would have found in a, a previous generation. So that's just one example. The, the origins of the First World War is an even Better example, Christopher Clark's mm -hmm. um, Sleepwalkers was massively influential, and it really narrows the um, the uh, the outbreak of the war and its causes down to some days in in June and July, as opposed to giving deep, long term um, uh, kinds of explanations. So, in both of those cases, I think. Um, our, our, our contingency explanations um, have been much stronger than the structural or, um, or in, um, deterministic ones. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking, as, as, as uh, Sue was describing those panel, that, of course, Chinese history, for certain political and ideological reasons, has a necessarily deterministic bent, at least if it's being done in China. So I'm very curious to know how these deterministic and contingent fights have sorted themselves out in the last 30 years. Uh, and I bet you there's been some changes back and forth. And also there's going to be necessarily a intra-China and extra-Chinas. There's going to be another sort of dimension to that. Sort of, there's a Z-axis as well going on. Yeah. Well, that's that's a big question. I know it's huge now. I realize. Well, it's, it's also I, you know, I've never really thought about this in terms of sorting it sorting it out this way either. But um, yeah, I first of all, let me just say I'm I'm very sympathetic to Sue's suggestion that part of the whole orientation towards contingency is moving explanations closer in time mm -hmm. to what it is you're trying to explain, and I I think that's a a long-term trend, you know, since the 19th century, we've been, you know, tending towards this. Um, but, uh, you know, in the case of Chinese history, particularly the English language historiography, you have what uh, another kind of problem, which is like the false continuities, right? Um, and so um, the original problem for the American profession was, why did China go communist? in 1949. And then they, you'd hear all these explanations. Well, you know, uh, the Chinese have been conditioned, you know, for thousands of years to despotism. So they, mm. they, they think it's fine. Um, and Confucianism, because Confucianism, this must be it. Um, and so those are, I, I mean, within, among historians, those are no longer sort of I don't think very credible explanations, but w with our field, this this might happen in Sue's field too. As soon as we get done with some idea, it's just sort of like it didn't work. It goes into the IR, 
it goes into the international relations <laughs> people, and and they they just start you know in with this, and this is where all these false continuities go to live more or less. So Confucianism went to live there, and yeah. uh, two thousand years of continuous imperial history, which didn't happen, that went to live there also, and uh, then this other idea that you know there was some kind of a Chinese world order. Uh, that will, in fact, be a good model for future uh, international relations in East Asia. Um, these, are, these are just uh, things that were once um, sort of viable uh, semantics in, in, among historians of China, but uh, over time they became, became unviable. And uh, it is an astonishing thing to see. They always have this afterlife where they just go and live with the IR people forever. <laughs> So what's the what's the latest sort of contingent argument in Chinese history? What's the where what are what are what's that? Where's that? Where's the focus right now? Well, we've had some astonishing developments because um, Xi Jinping has has decided uh, this is going to be his thing, um, rewriting the past. I mean, um, his predecessors didn't really even think that this this is something you would do, but he's decided to rewrite the past. And so to put it in the, the largest terms, um, they have decided that um, uh, China went from being a small collection of little states on the Yellow River to being this extremely large uh, entity that it is today uh, without conquest. It, it just happened by... Oh, accretion and voluntary, uh, people just signing up, you know, to, to join and, um, or, uh, using a lot of these things are taken from American history, the empty frontiers. They, they now have a whole narrative of Chinese history of there was nobody there. So, you know, we might as well move in. So, uh, this is, um, uh, contingencies, determinism. This is, in the case of the Chinese historian, they, they are not allergic to deterministic explanations. And so the, the profoundest one for them is just the basic sort of charisma of Chinese culture and uh, the power of the Chinese economy, that these in and of themselves can cause a very, very small country to become very, very big. Um, and we did used to have explanations like this for how tiny little 13 colonies somehow became this continental and, in fact, you know, transoceanic entity. And we had some of these same explanations. It was all about charisma. It was about the charm of the idea. It was about empty frontiers. Um, but basically, uh, there's a cognate, right? That, that for Americans, it's that, well, it's because the American idea, that's, that's what it was. Everybody just wanted to join up with that. The Chinese now has Xi Jinping, who I, I don't want to say all historians in China, Xi Jinping at the moment is able to more or less control what, what they can say. Uh, so Xi Jinping's idea is that this is going to be the new Chinese history. So uh, all these places that we have now, like Xinjiang and Tibet and so on, uh, they were not conquered. They were mm -hmm. always part of the sort of Chinese uh, uh, ecumen. Um, so it's a, 
it's an artful playing with false continuities, um, but also these kinds of uh, charismatic, exceptionalistic um, ideas that I think are totally deterministic, right, right down to their their, their shoes. Um, and uh, what used to what the American history uh, culture, let's say, was fifty years ago. Uh, maybe longer, is more or less what it's been in China since 2014. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, let's move on to talk about sort of, uh, I was I was very struck um, in the um, AHR forum that in which you participated, Pamela, um, there's basically a sense of, uh, of causality being dead. Um, there was, I think, when I, in the 90s, even as late as the 90s, there was an idea that, you know, if historians aren't to, like, explain, you know, why this happened, what are we for? Um, what's this all about? But that there's been a very decisive break from that. Um, and I don't think um, I don't particularly understand why. Could you could you help me out? Why, what? Why, why there was a break from that, from this idea that, you know, um, I, you know, I, I, I sort of basically, I, I've always thought of as like, you know, the historian is the fat cop walking into the room and, you know, there's blood on the floor and the walls and there's a Twinkie that's half eaten and a glass yep, of milk and yep. a parrot in the cage that's like singing opera. And the, the fat Sorry. cop takes a cigarette out of his mouth and said, what the hell happened here and why? Yeah, I mean, that's I, like, that, that seems to me a good sort of history question right there. Yeah, but I wonder um, if it means um, what you're sort of suggesting that it means. I, I, I say something like that to my, my beginning students, you know, that this is forensic, mm -hmm. that uh, we arrived after the crime had occurred and we might have some witnesses we might have some uh, physical clues we, you know we might have some some documents that will give us but basically we're trying to reconstruct what happened but to me that process of doing that inquiry is mm -hmm. is is really and this to me this is the eternal value of historical study uh, not that we can provide wonderful explanations, but that we can provide sound ways of discovering and assessing and interpreting evidence. And actually, I think uh, recent events show that the more we go along, the more critical this is to our civilization, as it were. And I think this is what historians actually have to offer. Um, now, Initial students don't want to hear that. They want the other end of it. You know, <laughs> don't don't tell us how you begin. You know, tell mm -hmm. us. How. But in fact, I think those skills really are very important. And they they think that a, a narrative is is evidence. You know, they think that if you tell them the story of what happened here and what happened there and what happened in another place, that that's all evidence that they can put together to come up with a big explanation. Right. And in fact, you have to explain to them no. Narratives are not evidence of anything except how and why people create narratives. Other than that, they, they don't. So that uh, getting from that evidence, the critical um, approach to evidence to an actual narrative is already, you know, a huge undertaking. And mm -hmm. you actually did all the interpreting before you wrote the narrative. That's just the way 
narrative actually works. So um, I, on your other point, why would causation go away? I do think yeah. histori- I do think historians are partly responsible for this in the sense that you probably remember, as I do, back in the 70s, um, that's when I was an undergraduate, there were people who thought that um, uh, historical methods could be objective. And um, they really wanted to make all these uh, parallels and analogies between what they were doing and what people in the sciences were doing. Um, I even, when I was beginning my graduate career, some very senior historian said to me, commenting on something I had said, but what about Occam's razor? Now, I mean, I just, <laughs> I was just staring. I, I couldn't really believe that a historian would actually suggest that Occam's razor, which is designed for empirical, you know, observation of repeatable, reproducible events, right? Until you get down to your one uh, explanation. This has absolutely nothing to do with history. There's no, I mean, historians, but this was in vogue at a time. There was a time when you were supposed to think uh, historical methods had become objectified. And I think that that when that collapsed, more or less, you know, under the pressure of uh, critical cultural studies and so on, and uh, that um, there was probably no way to really recover um, that whole idea that historians are here to provide explanations for everything that's happened. That's very interesting. So you, so you see, like, in terms of the history of history, um, that it was very much part of the the, the, the the acme of social history was also the acme of, of causation. Uh, that we're, we're here. To, we're here to find out why that ball. This is very Newtonian. Um, is why when exactly the action and reaction took place and where it came from and where it went. That was that was that was when we were doing that. Yeah, that's actually Actonian. That was Acton's whole model. And of course, in his history of the modern world, he more or less established that. Um, it came into my field. It probably went into every field, this whole idea that that's, that's actually the way things happen. Everything's a chain reaction. Uh, there's a challenge and there's a response, you know, and then that's the way that goes uh, so that you can have the first, second and third laws of, of history or something. I mean, um you know, it built up slowly, I think, over the 20th century. But in the 70s, I think there was a peak, particularly with uh, uh, the arrival of uh, economic history in, yeah. in a certain form. And people were thinking, this is what we do. We crunch a lot of numbers and then we don't have to go with anybody's subjective opinion. of it. I have several I have several books on the shelves behind me that I bought for cheap, which came uh, back in the 70s. They had the main volume, but then also an appendix of the data. It's been a while since someone. I mean, I university, university presses have uh, changed economic incentives, uh, but it's not just that's not the only reason they stopped doing that. I remember uh, that. Yeah. So uh, Sue, the name Acton was mentioned, and I, you know, that he's as good in German as he is in English. Um, and so now you can like describe the connection to Dollinger and um, all the. But what what uh, what what do you have to say to some of what Pamela just laid out? You know, I, I think she has this absolutely right. I would just say that, that at the moment, I'm feeling that I actually want those those data compendia back to yeah. a certain extent. And I, I think we have gone too far away from some of the social history of the past. I go back and look at it. And some of it, of course, is written in a more deterministic way. But the, the, the guts of it, the real work that went into it, the everyday life material, the um, the class analysis, some of that I really miss, and I I think um, you know I, uh, the platforms 
needs to swing perhaps in that direction. I, so, I, I, I couldn't ahead. agree more. I agree. And I think it actually, I have a theory, which I, uh, well, no, it's a hypothesis, which I've been developing. Um, I think it's about to, um, because of just as those guys were responding to changes. Well, for one thing, they had, they had mainframe computers in the sixties. They could run the data sets. Um, so Fogel-Mengerman, you can't write time on the cross. You can't do those things. You can't write uh, the, the Rutmans wrote the uh, history of Middlesex County, Virginia, very minor and unimportant County just had ex- its courthouse never burned. So it had excellent records. Um, but you couldn't do that without a sort of a sixties era database. Um, that became blase. Interestingly enough, as computer power increased, that also became blase. But um, what's going on in like the computer world is data sciences. So there's this fascinating project, the 1381 project, um, at a university of Southampton and Oxford. I've been trying to get the leader of it on the podcast and they're analyzing the peasants rebellion of 1381. And they have a lot of interesting data sets and they call it the 1381 project because they've discovered it's not a peasants rebellion that many of the participants in this so-called peasants rebellion in Britain actually were men at arms. Um, they might not have had enough money to fund a retinue uh, of several or four or five or six men, but they had enough money to buy plate armor, expensive, you know, Italian armor and uh, a horse, two horses. And these are the guys riding around leading the rebellion or well, whatever they were. It's not the image of like yokels and pitchforks from Mike Python and the Holy Grail. Um, and they're able to do that by comparing different data sets using data analysis tools. Um, and I think that, you know, in about 10 years, I've met a few graduate students that are interested in doing stuff like that. Um, and I, I'm hoping that it happens. But at the same time, that uh, unlike some of the people in the 70s, that we they don't forget how to write. Mm. Um, because I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons that social science, that social science went failed was, is that, um, if you were French, you could tell a really good story about these things. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, I noticed, uh, many American historians, whether they're talking about French or German or American history often thought, yeah, you know, that kind of gets that all that stuff gets in the way of the, of the important stuff. So I, I, I think it will happen. Um, in a, in a slightly different way than it did before. Yeah, I think that that material um, acts really uh, very powerfully to falsify some of the things that we thought we knew that were merely anecdotal yep. or um, or sort of nice stories, but don't in fact give you the um, the truth of the wider set of circumstances. I also think you know things in our own experience recently have have perhaps inclined us in this direction. You know, the 2008 uh, economic downturn reminded us that the economy does really matter quite a lot if we hadn't um, noticed it before. And then with respect to some of those shorter term consequences and uh, and contingencies, you know, I wonder if we're 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 trying on uh, to make sense of some of the things that have happened seemingly rather suddenly in our own day. And I would witness here, you know, 9-11, mm-hmm. um, 1989, which mm-hmm. came as a shock to most of us European historians. Even the rise of Gorbachev was um, was a bit of a shock. Uh, Brexit, 
Mm -hmm. um, and then the election of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Now, we can go back and we will and find deeper roots of these things. And that's, you know, all of that's going on. But many of those things at least came to me as as shocks. And I think that perhaps that's one reason why it makes more sense to me to look for some of those more short term uh, kinds of of, um, causalities or contingencies uh, in order to to make sense of of historical processes that I see going around um, in my own day. Yeah, I think that's that's very shrewd. What one thing is that that uh, that Sue that you pointed out is you've already mentioned uh, the, of course the, some of these big topics in in German history, but you uh, point out, for example, the causes of the French Revolution, the English Civil Wars, causes of the Industrial Revolution, its uniqueness. These are all we could go on. Um, we could go on to like contingencies that things that didn't happen, uh, the things that didn't cause something like China, Chinese scientific prowess, mm-hmm. um, and then the 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 sort of scientific the the Chinese industrial revolution that did not happen. Um, that's that's pre- has preoccupied people for a long time. Um, but, but these these that, things that have, was a question in my orals, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm good. I I could have I could have given your orals. That's great. Um, but uh, you, these have as but I, I and a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are deeply interested in these questions. But I want to underline that we historians are less and less interested in these questions. Is that is that fair? Um, I think that we have to answer those causality questions on a daily basis in our teaching. Okay, that they just come up all the time, and it's important for us to make a stab at them. Right. Um, now, it's important also to qualify those explanations in the ways Pamela has done previously and, and also to, um, to offer uh, a kind of modesty with respect to our explanations and say, you know, th- these, are, uh, these are some of the reasons why the First World War happened the way it did. It might have happened another way, um, but here are some factors uh, not excluding other factors. I think one of the discomforts that we had with that older social scientific history was that it seemed just too doctrinaire and left out so many people and so many different dimensions that we now want to take stock of. So I think we don't want to go back there. Right. Um, I think I think we have also diffused the concept of power um, in a way, and that has also changed our dynamic. So, um, you know, our real focus on causality uh, goes back to Thucydides. I mean, this is the model of 19th century history writing that came up through the German school, which you mentioned previously, um, may not be well known, but uh, Heronka wrote his dissertation on Thucydides and was actually referred to in his own day as the new Thucydides. And there are lots of um, those German historians who thought that their job from that time forward was to explain the causes of war and power uh, in action. And I think that that model is one that um, was very, very uh, influential for historians who wanted to show that they were objective, that they were writing um, the the actual full story of whatever it was, the Peloponnesian Wars or the um, or the Boer Wars or uh, the First World War. But we just don't have that the same concept of power that Thucydides had. Ours is 
wider and I think more nuanced. And um, I just don't think we can go back, particularly in our research, to to those kinds of explanations. And we we shouldn't. Um, this is why I love Herodotus more than I love Thucydides, because his explanation of historical events is full of all kinds of bizarre um, kinds of explanations, many of which don't have anything to do with power, but have to do with uh, personalities, accidents, fate, gods, um, uh, insects, you you name it. Um, It's a much, much richer way of of telling a historical story. Pamela. Uh, Well, going back to your question about answering questions, I think we should answer the questions that don't disappear when you ask them. Um, So, for instance, I mean, let's go back to the, 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 you know, this question about the Industrial Revolution. Uh, I think uh, the the first the person sitting by, next to me right would would have said um hey, wait a minute wait a minute that's all eurocentric you're just assuming you know that this is the way history has to go that you know you have to have uh, come out of uh, feudalism and go into the, the, the capitalism and then you have to have but but you know why why would we have these assumptions blah blah and i you know that's all true i mean they're we have already done the thing where we we um mark things as eurocentric and then we just don't consider them anymore but they, in fact i you know i recently wrote something like this which is to this effect that um uh there was such a thing as industrialization but unfortunately we tend to refer to mechanization as industrialization i mean the truth is that in the 17th century a very large parts of Eurasia were industrialized. They were through manufacturers, they were producing huge amount of goods for export and so on, and sustaining domestic markets with this. The mechanization is what happened, and it wasn't a European thing. It happened in Britain, it happened in the low countries. And before it ever went to China, Africa, and so on, it had to go to Central Europe and Eastern Europe and so on. And then, you know, so even the construction of something like industrializing Europe, right, is so problematic that when you ask the question, it really just falls apart. So I think the one, the questions that, that that can't hang together maybe are the ones that we don't have to answer and then we can we can answer the whatever's left right after that <laughs> so, so would you um just close this up I'm, I'm curious then would you even discuss um obviously change over time learning the nuances how that affects everyone from the amish to the development of porcelain um Everything changes, um, and sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, some things stay the same. Um, but causality is not at least the way that contingency, the heuristic of contingency determinism, fine, but really thinking that history is for determining the, the big whys, that's not what we should be focusing on. Sue? Um. I don't know. I I think there are some some big questions that we ought to take a stab at. But I think uh, Pamela's right. We can't pose them in some of the same ways that we um, we used to do. Right. And of course, the specialization has has gotten so um, extreme that it's very hard for us to be confident that we could 
take all factors into consideration to make some of those claims. But I don't think it's a bad idea for us to have um, at least conversations uh, and collaborations around big issues and to try to use those to link fields together. That seems to me to be fully sensible. But um, we're never going to be able to uh, give some, you know, really um, convincing for all time explanation of why, um, you know, why the First World War happened in the way it happened, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I don't think we should stop debating those things. They're of interest to many people. They're crucially important for world history, but we just need to do it in a, in a way that um, doesn't shut down the possibility that the question we're asking needs to be posed in a, in a different manner. And uh, Pamela Crossley, you have the last word. Oh, well, I'll just fall, fall back on my apologia for the heuristic device, um, which is uh, if in the end people want to decide his, historiography is just one big heuristic device, it's fine with me. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I, what I, ideally what you would want to do is on the first day you would work through one uh, theory of the, uh, the explanation, let's say, for the Civil War or for the Opium War or for the the uh, civil the Civil War in China that resulted in communism, and then the next day you would look at a completely different one, and the next day, and if you could do that infinitely. Right. <laughs> Nobody ever goes anywhere, does anything else. Nobody dies. Everybody comes in every day and goes through a completely different explanation. That would actually be history. So um, I think, yes, we must never stop asking the questions and giving answers, but it has to all be done in this, uh, you know, with the suspension of disbelief. My guests today have been Pamela Crossley, the College Professor of History at Dartmouth College, and Suzanne L. Marchand, Boyd Professor of History at Louisiana State University. Thank you so much, both of you, for being with us once again. A pleasure. Great pleasure. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. <laughs>